Hello, welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, I'm delighted that my guest this week is one of our newest young commentators. Poppy Coburn is a journalist and writer, and she's currently working at GB News, but uh, she has been in The Telegraph most recently. Before that, she was working at Unheard. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you Poppy. for having me. No, it's just lovely to see you. Um, I have to say, uh, one of the reasons I want to speak to you is because you wrote a superb piece in The Telegraph recently mm -hmm. about immigration. And I thought it was actually quite a brave piece. Mm -hmm. um, can you start by just telling us the gist of that piece? Yeah, of course. Um, so the reason I wrote it is, um, obviously this is a very difficult time for the Conservative Party. So I think most of what you're hearing in the media is um, about kind of the economic packages that Trust and Quateng have been putting forward arguments over the future of levelling up, um, whether or not the labour threat's going to be happening, foreign policy issues. But there's one thing that's really been ignored, um, and it's been ignored for quite a few years, and that's immigration. Um, and I think the real reason that immigration has been ignored, something I bring up in the piece, is that after we won the Brexit referendum, after the Leave vote won, people kind of assumed that we were in safe hands. You know, we know that public opinion has shown that consistently people vote for governments that are saying we will have lower immigration. You know, all of the polling supports this. 70% of Conservative voters have said that they want to limit immigration under 100,000 a year. You know, this is something that uh, Matthew Goodwin's done some polling on recently. And I did a little bit of digging. And if you go through the manifestos of uh, every successful government in the past 30 years, each manifesto says, we pledge to reduce the number of immigrants. And every government since then has increased the numbers. So this is a, a gigantic demographic change that has been done entirely without public consent. And I think uh, if we do see the polls being correct, that the Conservative government is going to be wiped out at the next election, perhaps too early to say, but it's looking likely, I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching done on behalf of conservative activists, which said, we've been in government for 12 years and every promise we have held on immigration, we failed on, you know? And uh, I don't think it's something that can be ignored anymore. I think this is a real area of policy that, you know, uh, anybody who is passionate about, well, not even just conservative policies, but about democracy, you know, about people being heard, you have to focus on this. You can't put it to the side anymore. Um, so that's what really prompted me to, you know, start writing about this. I mean, do, uh, in, in a way, you know, what you're saying, of course, is sort of can't be denied. Mm. But what is your own personal feeling about it? I mean, do you do you think that it is also one of the most important issues facing the country? I'd say it's the existential yeah, yeah. issue. I, I would say it is the existential issue of our time. Um, it's something that I would say personally, I'm deeply invested in. Um, and why, the reason, you, why, why, well, why? I would say the reason behind that is um, something you never really hear this discussed in media, right? But if you're a young person growing up in Britain today, things aren't looking very good for you. And I think one of the major reasons you can draw that back to you is, is immigration, yeah. right? So I'm a graduate. I graduated last year. Um, that puts me at the marginal rate of tax, same level as a top earner, so a top city banker. I'm paying the same marginal rate of tax as he is. Yeah. And uh, I knew that, you know, when I, when I joined up to university. But then you start to think, well, 
why are we paying all this money for our university education? Now you can draw that back to immigration. Post-1992, when the universities were liberalised, uh, this was a big Blairite push. We're going to get 50% of all young people going to university. You know, this is a big old social reform. Um, and that was done. And uh, then the justification was given. Well, now we have so many students, they're going to have to pay their own way. Now, it's increasingly becoming clear that a lot of these post-1992 universities are not providing the level of educational you know, benefit that they're promising to students, right? So you think, well, how are, they, how are these universities staying open? You know, that surely there can't be enough people going to them. So I did a little bit of research, um, and I've actually written a piece on it that should be coming out soon. Um, and I focused in on two universities. So one was Middlesex, one was Bedfordshire, bottom of the league tables. Now, they both take around uh, a third of their student body are foreign students coming from abroad. And 75% uh, of their students are postgraduates. They also both offer one-year master's courses, very, very cheap, you know, under £10,000. Now, why, would, why are people taking yeah. these master's courses? Well, they're coming here, right? Because if you do a master's course for a year, you get a two-year study visa. This was liberalised under Boris Johnson. You can bring dependents along as well. Yeah. And through that back channel, people are entering the country, right? Yeah. So, so this is one way in which young people, you know, are paying for this because we're paying to prop up these universities. Like our, our fees are literally going to prop up these universities that should no longer exist, you know, that are not doing what they're saying on the tin. Now, another thing I've noticed, I'd moved to London, like so many other young people looking for work. Um, and I would say about half of my wages go on rent. Um, we have a serious housing crisis in the country. Um, I consider myself to be like a YIMBY. I want there to be more housing developed, but it's a very fraught political issue. Um, and everybody I've spoken to on this issue who will say, yes, we've got this housing crisis, will I say, well, that's in part because of immigration, right? Oh, well, no, no, that, that doesn't play a part. But of course it plays a part. I mean, yeah, yeah. last year, the first time ever, we gave out more than a million visas. Mm. You know, it's uh, by social and economic means, people tend to concentrate in cities when they migrate. Of course there's competition there, you know. There are very, you know, nobody's really making these links where immigration is like a very, it, it's not just something about boosting GDP. It affects every aspect of life, you know. It affects the NHS, the welfare state, education, all of these things. And nobody seems to be talking about it. I, I, I fully, you know, uh, agree with your uh, analysis, your frustration actually about mm. it, because I remember um, when I was on the London Assembly, mm. housing would come up all the time. And it was clear as about that if London was at, the, at that time, mm. um, was, you know, the population was increasing exponentially. And there was not enough housing. But nobody would talk about what you might call the demand side. It was always the supply yeah. side. It was, oh, should we be on brownfield sites or not? Mm -hmm. So it was never about, you know, the fact that obviously if you've got a massively increasing population. Um, but you see, when you say people don't, they say, oh, well, no, it's not, you know, it's not really to do that. Mm. Are you talking about uh, people in the political sphere or your peer group? I mean, because it seems to be there's a kind of denial, apart from everywhere else in the country, it seems to mm. me, they all seem to understand these things. I mean, to be honest with you, I think there is this generalisation of my generation, which would be Generation Z, which say we're all really, you know, woke, left-wing, whatever you want to call it. 
I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that's uh, that is a generalization. Right. And I think that you're going to start to see as more people are graduating, going into the workforce mm. and thinking, I haven't got good prospects. Mm. I haven't got much money. And I've got this government that just seems totally uninterested in me. Mm. How can you then be surprised that people mm. are moving towards more radical ideologies? Mm. I mean, people feel that they've got no stake in the country. Yeah. Um, and that's why when I wrote in this piece, um, we really can't ignore the role that the Conservative government has played in creating this immigration crisis. So we've had 12 years of Conservative government. You know, um, David Cameron, in his manifesto, you know, 2010, before he got into power, he wrote that he wanted to take immigration levels back to what they were in the 90s. Now, in the 90s, we had immigration levels that were about 10,000 or so net every year. Under Blair, they hit about 200,000 net every year. So Cameron gets elected and liberalizes immigration policy again. You know, there's no reduction in numbers. No reduction, there's an increase in numbers. Same thing with Theresa May happens, but Theresa May at least still keeps up the, well, we're going to try and bring numbers down and we're gonna try and do it through the hostile environment policy. And then you get Brexit you know, and uh, post-Brexit deal, Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson pretty much just says, you know what, we obviously aren't going to do anything about this. Mm. We're coasting on our reputation as Brexiteers. So people, voters, you yeah, know, naively yeah. assumed that their concerns would be listened to. And what I mentioned before about that educational mobilisation of student visas, that was done under Boris Johnson. Yeah. You know, this is supposed to be our, our Brexit leader. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. People voted for Brexit mm. to take back control, take back control of their borders. They're, but they're sort of, uh, they, they're kind of uh, recalibrating it so, so that control actually means, it doesn't mean lessen. Mm. That's what they're now saying. It means that we actually are making the decisions, mm -hmm. which is entirely different. You can say that's controlling, mm -hmm. but in fact, they're controlling it in the way that's utterly opposed to how most people mm -hmm. thought it was going to be. I mean, you know, when people look at this, you, you, you've you know, given us a survey of all those years, mm. When people look at it, you know, you can understand why people start to wonder, well, what is going on here, actually? Yeah. You know, why? Why will they not? Why, indeed, are they increasing? What would you say to them? Well, there are two arguments for this. Um, I've seen a lot of people say that there's the you know, economic belief that, you know, immigration brings all of these economic benefits to the country. Um, now, I've written about this before. Uh, if immigration is such, you know, economic rocket fuel, well, then why have we been in a 15-year productivity slump? And one of the reasons for that is, uh, the thing is, when you are importing a lot of low and middle-skilled migrants, um, it creates this perverse incentive for companies not to invest in capital. Um, and you're really starting to see the consequences of that now. So uh, the UK is really lagging behind many other EU member states um, in terms of our investment in technology. Um, you know, and this is something that economists have really started to, to point out. And you can actually see a direct link to our massive upswing in immigration and reduction in capital investment. You know, there's a very clear relationship there. So, you know, you can kind of bat that aside and say that, you know, there are economic arguments against immigration. The government knows this. I, I think they know this. I would say that it is more justified in their mind as a social good. They see it as almost a humanitarian act. Because if they were looking at this as something we need to do to boost the economy, 
well, then we would have something like the Singapore visa system, which is, um, you know, it's harsh, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you are in Singapore on a work visa, if you lose your job in seven days, you're out. You have to leave the country. You know, uh, workers don't, well, have almost no rights at all. You know, they're, they're considered foreign residents. They live in barracks on the outside of town. You know, uh, that is their immigration system. It certainly boosts their economy. That's certainly not what we're doing here. You know, I, th I think they are, Truss in particular, and Boris Johnson, these are libertarians. They believe in immigration as a social good. And they are very out of step with what the average voter thinks. But I think they've been dishonest. You know, mm. I think they have got by for a very long time on uh, saying one thing and doing another. And that's not how politics works. They, I think, you know, when people talk about an ideologically based government, uh, you know, it's hard to disagree, you know, mm. because apparently most voters now are roundabout leftwards economically mm. and then on cultural issues on more to the right. You know, libertarians are exactly the other way around, yes. aren't they? Yes. And they I, I feel that they don't even really care so much about even when you come to the kind of cohesion arguments, mm. the cultural arguments, they don't care do they? Well well then we can bring up the example of what's been going on in Leicester. Yeah. You know, in the last couple of weeks. Um, this is a very clear example of the failure mm. of integration. Mm. You know, this is inevitable. This is what happens when you have unrestrained immigration and you allow people to settle in areas where they are not properly integrated, where they have no interest in integrating, and also does local government have any interest in integrating. Mm. I mean, a lot of the problem with Leicester was it was uh, sectarian violence. Mm. And if you could see some of the videos on social media, you see police officers kind of stand to the side while people are shouting uh, Hindu and Muslim sectarian slogans. And they are carrying out essentially, you know, ethnic battles from the Indian subcontinent mm. in Leicester. Mm. You know, how can you not say that that is something that is concerning for, for local people? I mean, of, of course it is. I think it'll, it's something as well that's going to increase, actually. Uh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. There's no question about that. I mean, this is obviously a, a huge issue, but is it something that, you know, you've been interested in for a long time? I and mean, when did you get interested in politics then, actually? Well, um, I think I've always been quite political, um, but you may find it slightly surprising. Uh, university, I was, uh, I was a very big environmental activist. Yeah, now you were, I've heard a little bird told me that you yes. were in Extinction Rebellion, is yes, that right? Yes, <laughs> I was. But, but I'm sorry, actually, so what, uh, which university was that then? Uh, so I went to Cambridge, oh. uh, so I matriculated in 2018. Right. As soon as I joined, first thing I did was uh, join up to a group called Cambridge Zero Carbon. Um, and it was essentially, it was Extinction Rebellion, but as a university society. So um, I spent a lot of time going on marches, uh, being really involved in kind of left-leaning student politics. Um, so I've always been political, but my political opinions have evolved. I was a very big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. I was absolutely devastated <laughs> the night he was lost the election. Um, I actually described it as being one of the worst nights of my life. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, so so I, that's quite a. That's quite a journey in a short space of time yes suppose, yes yeah. it is i suppose but there have been certain things that i've always you know i've always been populist you know i have always supported brexit mm. for, for one um i consider myself to be a lexiteer but i i've always supported that i've always um 
fact, people are considered to be anti-establishment insurgents. You know, people offering something fresh yeah. to British government. Yeah. You know, I, I've never liked the kind of Westminster lobby types. I, I think they are at fault for a lot of the decline we've seen in the last couple of decades. So, I have jumped certainly in. You know, what was it like uh, in, in being in the environmentalist movement, you know, Extinction Rebellion? Because mm. I mean, it's pretty much it, always in the news now, but yeah. we've just had this incident with uh, one of the activists. Captain you know, Tom, yes. yes. Defining the uh, monument to Captain Tom or mm. with uh, excrement. Uh, I mean, did you meet people like that? I well, mean, it's funny that you mention this because I've kind of been thinking about this in the past couple of days. And I was seeing this uh, back when I was doing my activism. So this was a couple of years ago. It would have been about 2018, 2019. And what you were seeing were increasingly groups were splitting away from mainstream environmental groups like Extinction Rebellion. And they wanted something more radical. And you, what you have to understand is the mindset of these people and myself at that time. When you are being told <laughs> the world is going to end, yeah. you start to think, well, if the world's going to end, why are we just you know, faffing about on a bridge somewhere, yes, blocking yes, cars? Yeah. We should be doing something far more extreme. Now, prior to 2001, uh, the 9-11 attacks, the most monitored terrorist groups were environmental groups. They yeah. were considered to be the greatest threat. Then for a few decades, it was the threat of Islamist terrorism. But I think in the next decade or so, we're going to start to see environmental terrorism going right. back to the top. Right. Um, so I think that particular example of the obviously very mentally disturbed young woman doing that protest against uh, protest, if you can even call it that, mm -hmm. I think you're going to start to see more, you know, radicalized people mm -hmm. in the environmental movement who are going towards these more extreme, you know, kind of dark corners. Um, and I think the government should be deeply, deeply concerned about this. You know, it's interesting you say that actually if you're a young young person and you are told all the time the world's going to end so actually you know that pretty much legitimizes extreme action mm. um was that it that was obviously presumably your motivation mm -hmm. but also people around you as well i mean you know people you're growing up with was did it have that same effect on them i think it takes a certain type of personality right. to um be so taken up in this but i would say if you talk to you know anybody really of my generation a little bit younger they will have these very apocalyptic yeah. visions yeah. of the future um now what i will say you know in defense of my generation the leadership of all of these movements are very old so when i was actually walking over uh, <laughs> a few hours ago i saw that uh, around westminster the streets have been blocked off by just stop oil protesters yeah. And every single one of them had silver hair. Yes, yes, you know, yes. They were all yes. over the age of 60. <laughs> now, if you look at the anti-fracking protesters, same thing, all over 60. You know, the idea that this is like a, a grassroots movement coming out from young people, that's not necessarily true. You know, young people have a right to be concerned about you know, the, the future of the world yeah. and the future of this government. But the people who are leading a lot of this wacky stuff, um, that's not my generation. They, 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 they actually seems more of a class thing to me. Mm. They seem to be pretty solidly middle class. Actually. Yeah, I, I would say middle class, middle aged, you know, yeah. uh, perhaps underemployed, too much time yeah. on their hands. I mean, that goes for pretty much all activists. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, the more radicalised fish, of course, you're going to see younger people. That's going to be, you know, the young people who are getting swept up in this. Um, and I, I think it's it's really sad. You know, it's really sad. Yeah, what is it? I mean, 
Yes, if that was what you were doing, do you not believe in any of it uh, at all now in the environmentalist thing? Or what's your position now? I think the problem is environmentalism is a very, very complex issue. And I think it's the sort of thing that it will have a technocratic solution. You know, it is not the sort of thing that you as an ordinary person have much sway over because by its very nature, it is transnational. It is extremely complex. It is dealing with like the levers of international capital and finance. You know, it's not something that you can even start to address by, you know, recycling or marching down the street with a megaphone and, you know, calling on the government, I mean, to do what? This is such a complex issue that I think it's quite concerning that already you're starting to see the electorate turn against, you know, green options because you've got this insane leadership, you know, like someone like Roger Hallam, who used to lead Extinction Rebellion, you know, people that are gluing themselves outside the Houses of Parliament or blocking roads. Everyone just thinks, well, these are just a bunch of like silly middle class hippies. I'm not going to pay attention to them. But these are, I mean, it's a real issue. It's, it's going to impact us all. Um, it should be left to government. It shouldn't be, you know, left to these extremely left-wing activists who are using it as a package to push for very left-wing policies. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my experience anyway of, of uh, just the Greens, actually, mm. uh, was that, in fact, they were f more left-wing than Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. I mean, you know, that, that old saying, what is it, the watermelons, you know, red on the inside. Yes. Essentially, a lot of Marxists went off yes. into this yes, area. Yes, yes, yes. You know, um, and um, took on a different... A different mantle. Um, do I take it then that you're not, for example, in agreement about, say, net zero? Or, or, or... Well, um, <laughs> I net zero is going to be disastrous for yes, you know yeah. it, the average man on the street. It is going to be absolutely disastrous for the average man on the street. I think um, you know one of the massive problems of the environmentalist movement has been the turn away from nuclear energy, and it frustrates me to no end. And it's because people have accepted that decline is yeah. inevitable. We've basically said the only way we're going to be able to deal with all of these problems is by shrinking the economy, shrinking our power on the international stage, and essentially just giving up. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and that's not just an environmentalist thing. That's, I think, the dominant mindset of your average you know, state official today is, is decline, is decline. Um, you know, there's no idea of taking you know, control, taking the mantle and actually pushing for pro-growth, green growth, but actual green growth. No talk about nuclear energy, no talk about like actually dealing with China or India, you know, actually really cracking down on it. It's just, well, we're going to have to like scale everything back yeah. and the next generation is going to have to accept being poorer. And they won't, you know, they simply won't. You can't expect to have another generation of conservative voters if they are just being, you know, left out in the cold, which yeah. is... This is this is what's happening. Yes, it's it is hard, you know, not to see like, for younger people. I mean, when I think, for example, of travelling, mm. um, you know, just the expense of it now, mm. um, and you look back, you think, oh, God, we were very lucky. Actually, mm -hmm. you know, we had this sort of extraordinary golden era of cheap travel. Tell me a bit about your actual background. Probably, were you, where are you? Where did you grow up? So um, I was born in Southend. Um, yeah. I'm an Essex girl, yeah. um, but I lived in Malden, which is a small town in North Essex. Oh. Um, I went to a comprehensive school, uh, 
I was, you know, quite geeky from an early age. Uh, stood, stood out like a sore thumb, really. Um, then went to a grammar school for sick form in Colchester. Um, and then went off to Cambridge and it was an absolute culture shock. I found myself feeling very desperately wanting to keep up with my peers who nice. tended to be quite left-leaning, left -leaning. wealthy. Um, you know, I couldn't believe the fact they all had parents that were voting Remain, for example, yes, you know, yes. that they were so out of touch with even just, you know, your average Middle Englander. Um, and I found that quite fascinating, you know. So I think that really entrenched in me this anti-establishment feeling. Yeah. You know, because you, you are made to feel slightly like an outsider, yeah. um, even when you do claw your way into these institutions. Did you like it, though? Did you enjoy your time there? Well, I would say it was difficult because the pandemic hit in my second year. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. So um, as much as I loved my course, I adored my course, it was you know, one of those early signs that things weren't going to be fun as a young no, person no, in the UK. No. You know, you realise that you are being asked to make these horrendous sacrifices for no real gain. Yeah. Um, and I think, like so many other young people, I fell into this horrendous, you know, dark kind of feeling of, like, hopelessness. Mm. Um, it, was, it was very, very difficult. What actually was, what actually was the sort of day-to-day -day reality Mm. of being at college then during the pandemic. Everything done remotely, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I mean was that what it was? You just sat in your room and just had lectures and things? Pretty much. Um, so I had asked to go back because I, I didn't have enough space at home to work. You know, I, I didn't have yeah. this like massive, gigantic house. I could uh, have my own study to work in. So I had to come back. But that meant I was living alone in my mm. dorms. Mm. You know, I wasn't allowed to like go out and walk around. I wasn't allowed to speak to the other people at the college. I was sat in my room all day, um, and that had just the most horrendous impact. Imagine. It, yeah. it, re it really, really did. And I think in the next decade or so, we're really going to start to see the mm. effects on that, not just on my you know, age group, which just about got the tail end of it on our education experience. But I always think about the people who have had their GCSEs disrupted, mm. their A-levels disrupted, mm. or even primary school children. You know, the impact it's had on education and socialisation has just been absolutely disastrous. Mm. And for what? Mm. For what? It was, uh, it, it was a very, very difficult time. I think, I mean, it, it, I've been thinking a lot, a lot about this myself mm. recently, and um, <clears throat> I think I rather underestimated the general impact it had on me too. I mm. mean, just, I, I got this great sense of foreboding yeah. that nothing was actually going to go back to being what yes. it was, you know. And, and to an extent, obviously, it has, mm. although there is this feeling of, Things have had the stuffing knocked out of them. Yes. I, I still have that feeling. I think we almost accepted this fatalistic narrative mm. of like, this is what the world's going to be like now. Mm. Things are just bleak. I mean, mm. can you think of a single person who's optimistic about the future at the moment? I think most people don't seem to think about the future at all. I know. Actually. I think, you know, we've almost been stuck in the politics yeah. of now, yeah. like just getting through the week, just getting through the month and the next paycheck, just getting through the next government. Yeah. I mean, who has a vision of the future anymore? Mm. I mean, not to draw too heavily upon my left-wing roots, but a quote I come back to quite often is uh, something that Karl Marx actually wrote in one of his letters to Engels, which is, um, the bourgeoisie used to think in terms of hundreds of years. Now it can barely think in terms of, you know, a decade. Mm. Well, then I would amend that and say that uh, 
the elite class now can't even think of you know the next week or so. No, no. It's just crisis to crisis to crisis. There is no vision for Britain anymore. It is just decline. Um, Can I ask? Uh, we've been doing a, a, some uh, filming recently, actually, and and it's basically about young people. I I just feel terribly condescending when I say young people. But it's about basically. Um, Indoctrination mm -hmm. happens in schools and things, and yet some people seem to come through it and come to university, uh, whether it's because they're strong-minded or mm -hmm. individual or whatever, um, somehow unscathed by this process. Um, I mean, do you think that that is a, a, a correct analysis? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that there are people like yourself, you know, you're writing Telegraph now, you we're writing for unheard. Okay, you were left wing once. But mm -hmm. You know, you're, how would you actually? Call, what would you call yourself now? Well, um, I describe myself as a progressive, progressive. but I'm not a progressive in any in of sense the, of the word, yes. connotations of the yeah. terms. I believe in pretty much uh, making Britain a superpower again. Yeah. You know? I yeah. want to see us going forward. I don't want to be stuck in the past. Right. Um, well, great. But therefore, so you know, basically, how when young people often get in, mm. in touch with me and they sort of say. I'm the only one, you know, I, I don't like wokery, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not on the left, um, but everyone else seems to be around me. You know, what should they do? I mean, what, you know, how, what, what advice would you give them? What I would say is it is very, very difficult to be the first person that stands up and says, I don't agree with this. When I broke away from the orthodoxy when I was at university, I suddenly found myself extremely isolated. Really? Which is you know, understandable. I'd been working with these people for years on our political campaigns and I started to waver, started to think, you know, I don't think this is right anymore. Suddenly I found myself, you know, out in the cold. That's really, really tough. You know, it does take strength of character to get through that. But what I would say is um, you're not alone yeah. because I think more and more people now are quietly coming to the conclusion that this isn't right. It's that the social dynamics punish you as an individual for standing up and saying, I disagree. But the more people that do it, the less power this kind of pressure has on other people, which is why it's so important if you are young, if you are doubting this orthodoxy, if you're strong enough, stand up and say it. You know, Don't be afraid because people around you, even if they don't tell you, will be taking notice. You know, it's, uh, but it does, it does take strength of character and it can affect your life. You know, it can affect your friendships, yes. your relationships, uh, your job. Yeah. You know, it's not something you should take lightly. But um, I certainly think if you want to go into journalism or politics, if you're too afraid to do it now, then maybe we, it's not the right career for you. Well, no, you, you've gone, would you say you, you, you've gone into journalism? Because actually you, you're doing lots of different things, aren't mm. you? You know, you're a, a producer at GB News. Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems to me that that is one area of journalism where it would be very hard to actually say to somebody to try and make a living at it. Mm. Would you think that's true? Oh I mean, yeah, absolutely, you know. absolutely. I mean, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it has to be a passion project for you. Um, it certainly is for me. What I would say as well is um, there's a real temptation to once you enter, you know, this kind of political world, to say what other people are saying. Yeah. So you get invited to the dinner parties, you know, you go to the conference circuit, you know, you know that when you walk into a room, 
you're agreeing with all the people around you. Yeah. But then I think, well, why bother? Like, yeah. well, why bother? <laughs> go, go and yeah, finance yeah. and make a load of money in the city, you know? Yeah. Um, unless you are absolutely passionate about something, mm. that you are, you know, you've got a vision for the country you want to see put into mm. practice. Mm. Well, if it's in any decent vision, it's going to upset some people. You know, if you're not upsetting people, you're probably not doing it right. You say that yours is to see Britain being a superpower again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I think that's the first time I've heard someone on this channel say that. Yeah. And I mean, just broadly speaking, how would you? What are the steps to that? I mean, very. I know. <laughs> huge. Let's have a series. But I mean, you know, what, 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 you know, what has to change fundamentally? Do you think? I mean, I think that one of the most demoralising things mm. we live with is this cult of self-loathing, yes. which is not shared by most people in this mm -hmm. country, but it certainly is by the elites, if you mm. like. It's to say that it can be done. Yeah. That is the first thing you must do: is to accept that fatalism has no place in politics anymore. You know, it is doable to push for that identity. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the Italian elections, right? The election of Giorgia mm. Maloney. Mm. You know, who would have thought that, you know, this this woman could have taken power in Italy? Um, she's pushing for things that I may not agree with everything with her, but the most important thing, she has a vision for Italy. Yes. Yeah. She wants Italy to be powerful again, you know. Um, we don't have any politicians like that really in the UK. You know, I've written about this before, like, who are? are, you know, kind of, <laughs> who's the English Caesar? You know, mm. who, who do we have that's got a really strong vision to transform the country and to turn it into something great again? You know, it just takes a few people to stand up and say, that is what I believe in. It's well, not enough to just complain about the left. And that's what I well, essentially uh, believe. It, no, it's not, indeed. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, but it can be very comfortable just sort of mm. criticising that. What about you? I mean, would you ever stand for anything electorally? I would hope so in the future. Oh, you will? Yes, okay. I would hope so in the future. Put your money where your mouth is. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly. But probably not now. <laughs> I, I can't imagine anybody would like to be lectured to by a, uh, someone of my age. But I do, it, I do it anyway. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, look, we shall follow your progress, yeah, actually. Thank you. Uh, and, um, and I have to say, it's very good to hear uh, of such optimism. It really mm -hmm. is. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. That's uh, Poppy Coburn there. Um, we shall see you next week. Um, and uh, in the meantime, have a good time. Okay, bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead. For the future but we can't do it without your support from as little as three pounds per month you can help ensure that we continue on our mission as a member you'll receive a range of benefits including access to exclusive content invitations to our private events including here at our studios free copies of our books and much much more including of course our famous ncf mug if you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.